It's an honor to bring the word this morning. Let's pray for the reading of God's word. Father, we come before you in worship, and we ask now as we approach your word that you would soften our hearts, that your word would take root in our lives and bear the fruit which you desire for us, fruit of comfort and encouragement, the fruit of conviction and repentance. Father, that your spirit would work your word into our lives and mold us and make us into the image of your son. Lord, we need you to do this work. And we ask that you would bless our time in your word this morning. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. It's an honor to continue the series in 1 Corinthians. I'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 21. I have the text printed in your bulletin. I'd like to read it for you this morning. It's Paul writing. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not engage in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, as my words are true to your word, may they be taken to heart. But as my words, if my words stray from yours, may they be quickly forgotten. I pray this in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ. 
Amen. As I was preparing for my sermon this week, I had an introduction all uh, written, but uh, events of yesterday <clears throat> have encouraged me to modify my introduction <clears throat> just a little. Uh, you've likely seen, perhaps even experienced, that humorous drama of watching somebody learn a challenging task, like riding a bike or skating or skiing or using a chop saw. And after a few tries, that person gains a bit of confidence. And then while they're skating off or riding the bike, I think I've got this. They're looking back at their friends only to turn and find that disaster awaits them. It's a humorous experience as long as no one gets hurt. It's pretty funny for those who watch. Uh, For the one who crashes, It's still a good lesson. It usually provides that necessary boost in humility, as in the case of a chop saw. I better slow down and be more careful. I do still have my finger. I was cut by a kickback from the board, so I'm thankful to the Lord that I just lost my fingerprint, and uh, the rest of the finger is still there. Will it grow back the same? I'll ask the FBI. But for others of us in relationships, these pauses, these crashes may remind us that we still need help. A few crashes early on in whatever our experiences are may cure us of presumption. But at times, if we crash too often, it can lead us to despair. This appears to be the focus that Paul moves towards as he continues his letter to the Corinthians. He starts by stating very clearly, I don't want you to be unaware. Paul starts in this manner because he is aware that the argument that he has been bringing forward in the teaching uh, that we have freedom in Christ, that's a teaching that could lead to presumption. Freedom could lead us to presumption. And so he includes that Christians also have the responsibility of caring for our brothers and sisters and caring for their sense of conscience. Paul has been developing this basic argument, but here he focuses on some of the subtle dangers of living life surrounded by Christians and Christian thinking with Christian symbols and sacraments, Paul is genuinely concerned with the real danger that the Corinthian believers faced in being disqualified at the end of the race, to use his athlete analogy of earlier, or of being disqualified at the end of the age, as he speaks of here. And we won't touch much on that. We'll come to the end of the age in later chapters in Corinthians. But Paul reminds them, by taking them back to Israel and reminding them of their and our earlier failures. I appreciate Paul's understanding of the importance of history, the importance of looking back. Old Testament scholar Thesselton, he he reflects, quote, the tendency is to make the present time the arbiter of everything, rather than letting what he calls the grand narrative of the people of God from the past through the present to the purposive purposive future goal, mold our thoughts and practice, end quote. And so here we are invited to look back 
Notice first at the language of family that Paul uses. He is addressing his brothers. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers. He's reminding them that they are both brothers and we have fathers and you and I are in that same family line and so can also benefit from this look back into our spiritual family tree. And as we look back, we'll see a quick listing in verses 1 through 4 of some of the spiritual benefits that our fathers enjoyed. They were all under the cloud of verse 1. That refers to the cloud that led the people in the wilderness out of, uh, out of uh, Egypt in the day of Exodus 13, a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And that cloud, that fire served multiple purposes. First, they knew that God was present. Secondly, they recognized where they were to go. They were to simply follow that cloud. Lastly, it offered them protection as well, particularly in the instance in which they passed through the sea, which Paul alludes to here as well. Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's chariots in pursuit, the cloud caused confusion and gave that time to pass through. We see in verse 3 that God also provided for their physical needs, meat and drink, meat, physical meat from the manna of heaven, drink real water from the rock that flowed. But Paul is talking about more than God meeting real physical needs, although he is talking about that. For verse 2 mentions the cloud. And in doing so, both in the cloud and in baptism, he's making a a loose correlation between the spiritual experiences of Old Testament Israel and the two sacraments of the New Testament church in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. Baptism passing through the sea in the cloud, baptized into Moses, even though no one got wet at all. And of the Lord's Supper, of drinking of that refreshment in Christ Jesus. Here, he does it by speaking of Christ as the spiritual rock that followed them. The term rock was a name given to Yahweh in multiple places. It's typological of Christ. It describes Yahweh, for instance, in Psalm 18:2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Clearly, Paul is making the point, making the case in verses 1 through 4, that the people of God were given both physical and spiritual blessings. And yet, in verse 5, we read that God wasn't pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. If you wonder why God wasn't pleased, why an entire generation wasted away in the wilderness, or to use the expression of our text, overthrown, Paul gives us several reasons by way of giving us examples. We see that in verse 6. These are examples. Verse 11, these are examples written down for our instruction. This is not simply an opportunity to reflect or to think, but rather really reflect and pay attention so that, as in verse 6 suggests, we might not desire evil as they did. 
That phrase, desiring evil, is repeated throughout the Old Testament. For instance, in Psalm 106, verse 14, we read the people of God had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. Psalm 106 retells the glorious story of God's deliverance, that exodus out of Egypt. But note in verse 13 of Psalm 106, if you turn there, the people soon forgot his works and did not wait for his counsel. Very quickly they said, I got this, and moved into disaster. The story specifically that verse 14 and 13 that I've read references is when the people of God were at the base of the mountain and Moses was up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and the people grew impatient and demanded of Aaron to do something, fashion them a golden calf to worship, which is an action one scholar called, quote, the most egregious and blatant example of idolatry in the scripture. Even while God was speaking to Moses, the people tested him. Verse 7 includes a quote from Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. And on this use, the Old Testament scholar Schreiner, he remarks, quote, It's no accident that Paul selects a verse that describes Israel committing idolatry while eating and drinking, end quote. These actions of eating and drinking are one's that can be a tremendous spiritual blessing, as in the table of the Lord, but we also know can serve as a curse to us as well, can function in a way that enables us to take things for granted, to trust in the ritual rather than the reality. Paul gives another example. This one charges us not to indulge in spiritual immorality. And here he's referencing the Israelites' involvement with the Moabite women in Numbers chapter 25. You can turn there on your own and read that story. And if you do, you'll notice that even though they were involved in idolatry, verse 2 of that text says, these women invited the people to sacrifice to their gods. And the people ate and bow down to their gods. Again, here, sexual immorality is matched up with eating and drinking. In our text, we see that God brought swift judgment here as 23,000 fell in a single day. As an aside, if you do read the full story in Numbers 25, you'll notice that the number there is 24,000. Recently, that's caused some people to wonder about that. It's not been a problem historically as most scholars simply see it as a difference between the way the Hebrews count and the way that New Testament uh, Greek is counting. A simple explanation of the difference would be simply that Paul rounds down while Moses rounds up. They're both very round numbers. Next in verse 9, we see that God, uh, they, they continue and put God to the test by their unbelief. And here there's a reference to the account in Numbers 21, another opportunity for you to take a look again and be reminded there God brings swift judgment through that deadly serpent. And with that sweet, swift judgment also brings redemption through Moses and the staff. Verse 10 then lists grumbling as the next example. 
And that may both be surprising and concerning. I don't know about you, but I've never built a golden calf. I've never engaged in temple prostitution. But I have grumbled. I have grumbled, and who among us hasn't? And yet Paul is not speaking of that occasional bad or grumpy day. He's referencing the repeated failure of Israel to embrace a life of gratitude for God's work. Instead, it appears that they cultivated a sense of entitlement, which is no doubt a danger for us today as well. Their actions of grumbling again and again showed that they actually and truly believed, practically speaking, that God was obligated to provide for their desires and needs. Think about it. You grumble because you actually think you deserve something better. Their responses, my responses, our responses show the condition of our heart. And God here was again swift to bring judgment, this time through the destroyer, our text tells us. And that may either be referring to the destroyer in Exodus chapter 12 of the 10th plague or perhaps the destruction that occurred at the rebellion of Korah in number 16. In either case, the destruction was swift. And having given these five examples of how Israel displeased God, having encouraged all of us to look back into history, we ought to be concerned And that's exactly where Paul wants us to be as he moves to share two specific concerns that plagues God's people. The first is the sin of presumption, and the second is that of despair. Paul addresses presumption first, and quite frankly, in verse 12, he notes, Therefore, if anyone thinks he can stand, take heed, lest he fall. We regularly think we've got it. We regularly overestimate our ability to withstand temptation. Sometimes we simply just choose not to think through consequences. Sometimes we haven't trained ourselves to think at all. Sometimes we say, well, you know, it is better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. We may say that uh, jokingly uh, of our workplace or perhaps our home life. But we often live like that spiritually as well. After all, doesn't God always hear our request for forgiveness? Won't God forgive us for everything? Of course, the answer is yes, if you are repentant. But repentance involves a heart broken by one's sin. Repentance looks like something. It is a real striving for change, a real humble dependence upon the strength of the Lord. It doesn't look like merely going through motions of a religious ritual. We're reminded again here of verse 5 that God was not pleased with Israel. And yet in some sense they followed him. They were all baptized, we see this in the cloud. They all drank of that same spiritual food. And yet God was not pleased with him. Theologian F.F. F. Bruce remarks, quote, Just as their baptism and partaking of spiritual food and drink did not protect the Israelites against the consequences of their misdeed, neither will baptism 
or the Eucharistic partaking of Christ protect us, he says, ipso facto ensure our entry into final bliss if we desire evil as they did. There's a real danger for many in the church today who go through all the right motions, but their heart's never been really softened by the reality and the awareness of our own sin. Our hearts have never really been softened by an even greater understanding of God's forgiving love. You know the condition of your heart. You know whether you're simply here because it's the American thing to do, and it's a good thing to do, or whether you're here because you are in love with the Lord and desire to worship him with humility and brokenness, rejoicing in his good work. It is easy to drift into presumption. And how often we find that we might do that. And if we don't, or or as we find that we failed once again, and again, and again, we may begin to wonder, am I really saved? Is there actually hope for me? How dare I call myself a Christian when I act this way? And those questions are natural enough. The sense of despair is a reasonable response to that kind of natural thinking. And I think Paul anticipates this slide into despair, and he offers three incredibly hopeful and helpful points to hope to stave off that despair. First, in verse 13, you notice that he reminds us that our temptations are common and normal. No temptation has overcome you, but as such as is common to man. That private struggle you're having is common. And chances are very good that in a church of this size, there are many others struggling with nearly that same tendency. And so find a couple of wise friends or a mentor or two and be vulnerable with them. Share your struggle and you'll see you are not alone. Secondly, and even more importantly, we are reminded that God is faithful. This warrants a a sermon all its own. God's faithfulness is actually all you need. Think about this. Specifically remember that it is Christ's righteousness that saves you. It is not your own. When you're struggling with a sin in your life, it's not your perfection. It's Christ's perfection that saves you. It's God's faithfulness that delivers and sustains you. And that practically, that practically rather, looks like his son, our Savior, advocating for us and interceding for us. It looks like his Holy Spirit working in our life to convict us of that sin. That's why we're feeling bad about it. And to changing us and to bringing us into the peace of Christ to guard our hearts and our minds on him. If you feel broken by your sin, rejoice. It's a picture of God's faithful working in your life. Thirdly, God will protect you. He protects you in two ways. One, by limiting the level of your temptation, as well as providing you by a way or with a way of escape. Now, be careful here. If you're like me, 
Every now and then you use this and turn it back on God and say, obviously, Lord, you didn't limit this temptation to such that I was able to endure it. So my sin is really your fault because I couldn't endure it. I don't know if any of us would be cheeky enough to voice that out loud, but you may have thought that. I confess I have. Yet God, in his faithfulness, does, in fact, limit our temptation. And he does, in fact, provide us a way of escape. And Paul mentions one of the great ways of escape. It's in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee. Run. That is almost always an excellent response to temptation. You need not despair, though. You need not despair in your temptation. In fact, I welcome you into the struggle. Walking as followers of Christ in a fallen world is a struggle. God is faithful. You will fail, but God is faithful. You will fail, but Christ is perfect. Trust in his faithfulness. Having said this, Paul continues to move us forward, and he remarks in verse 14, flee idolatry. He's speaking as, is to, as of to sensible people, and he's saying if sensible people see this thing that's destructive in their life, they'll stop. If you notice that hitting your head with a hammer hurts and you're still sensible, which is a problem, I suppose, with that analogy, You will stop if you're involved in other destructive things in your life. Flee and replace them rather with something that will bring a blessing. To this end, Paul shares the one remedy. Each of these preceding concerns have had several practical ways to safeguard against despair or to safeguard against presumption. But there is ultimately only one remedy. And that is to fix one's gaze on Christ. To truly recognize our real need for his provision. For his provision of guidance. For his protection. For his sustenance. We must be fed by his food. And have our thirst quenched by his drink. Paul speaks of this as the cup of blessing in verse 16. And in the Jewish Passover meal, it was likely the third cup that was often referred to as the cup of blessing or the cup of thanksgiving. And they would celebrate and give thanks for God's redemptive works. And Paul uses it to reinforce the truth that we are both in union with Christ and in communion with one another at the table. First, Paul speaks of our union with Christ He says, consider this cup. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Notice his use of the word participation. We are not simply partaking. We are participating in his blood and in his body. I'm well aware that in three weeks we'll have the opportunity to hear Pastor Lloyd unpack this a bit more as he speaks through the spiritual mystery of the Lord's Supper as it comes up again in chapter 11, verses 17 and following. So I won't dive in too deep here, but suffice to say, 
Paul here does not hold to a mere memorial view of the Lord's Supper. Our involvement here is more than reflection. It is certainly that. It is certainly a call to remember and to reflect on what Christ has done, but it is one of participation. As we are fed and nourished by Christ at the table. Paul further teaches that it is not just a union with Christ in the meal, but also a communion with one another. You can see how he makes this point in verse 17. One bread showing that we who are many are one body. Here at the table, we are equals. We, those of us who have been broken by the guilt of our sin, those of us who have trusted in Christ's redemptive and forgiving work on the cross, are all equals. Susan, Sam, and I, along with my nephew Peter and his family, had an opportunity to spend a few glorious days on Mackinac Island. We stayed at the Grand Hotel. And when we were checking into the ferry ride to get to the island, they asked us where we'll be staying. And when we said the Grand Hotel, they said, you can find your bags there. They weren't just at the front desk. They were delivered to our rooms. Whether you brought one bag or a whole boat full of baggage, you all equally, if you were staying at the Grand Hotel, traveled equally light. Your baggage, your burdens were carried on another's shoulder. And this is the truth of the gospel. This is what Christ has done for each of us. We are all equally loved. We are all fully forgiven. Why then, Paul wonders, Why then would you pollute that beautiful truth by joining again to idols? This is the point that he makes as he wraps this up in verses 18 to 22. He moves back again to talk about food being offered to idols, but here again, he doesn't really care about the essential quality of the food or the reality of the idol. Pastor Lloyd prayed in his prayer of praise. The idols... They have eyes, but they do not see, ears, but they do not hear. They are nothing. The meat is still the same. But Paul reminds us in verse 19 that while the idols are nothing, the rituals surrounding them are both demonic and pagan. I have heard of many Christians who, when traveling, visiting Hindu or Buddhist temples, and I've seen some really beautiful ones, they engage in those token rituals sometimes so as not to offend their guests, sometimes not even thinking one bit, sometimes to genuinely want to gain a unique experience, others simply engaging because they say the Buddha or the idol is no deity at all. Whatever our intentions may be, Paul wants us to realize that if we do that, if you participate in those rituals, even though the thing offered, the right is nothing in itself. You are participating in a demonic activity. You are involved in a pagan ritual. And this rolls into other areas of our lives as well. 
You may have all sorts of excuses for the idols in your life. Paul warns you against that. Verse 21, he makes the point boldly that we cannot eat and drink at the Lord's table and at the table of demons. True worship excludes all other worship. If you are involved in idolatry in any way, you have ceased to worship God. Because Truly loving God crowds out all other false loves. Your love of wife, your love of your neighbor, your love of things that are good, right, and beautiful flow from your love of God. Again, there is only one ultimate remedy, and that is to fix our gaze on Christ, to recognize our true need for his guidance, for his protection, for his sustenance, And only then can we truly worship, to be fed by his food. And only then can we have our thirst quenched by his drink. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your great work of living perfectly, such that you can redeem those imperfect. Father, thank you for the meal that you have given us. This meal that reminds us again and again and does more than remind us. It feeds us and quenches our thirst. Father, we participate in your body and blood. We are in union with your son and communing with the saints around the world. Father, we rejoice at that mystery even as we struggle to fully understand it. Father, help us to see the idols in our lives that we would flee. Help us to be guarded against presumption, to begin to take things for granted. And Father, keep us from despair. Keep our gaze on your Son, Christ Jesus, for it is in him that we are found worthy. And we give you praise in his name. Amen.